Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Heather Booth, in a word, powerhouse. When it comes to progressive issue campaigns and driving issues in elections, that's who you want to lead as well as be on your team. A timeline. Heather's organizing began during the civil rights, anti-Vietnam War, and women's movements of the 60s. While an undergrad at the University of Chicago, she started the Jane Collective, an underground organization that helped women get safe but illegal abortions in the years before passage of Roe v. Wade. The feature, Ask for Jane, tells the story of this underground abortion network. More recently, the documentary Heather Booth, Changing the World, details her life in organizing. It's aired on PBS World Channel stations nationwide. Moving along, Heather was the founder and now president of the Midwest Academy, which trains social change leaders and organizers. She's been involved in and managed political campaigns. In 2000, she was director of the NAACP National Voter Fund, and five years later, lead consultant directing the founding of the Campaign for Comprehensive Reform. There was her work as director of the AFL-CIO's healthcare campaign in 2008, founding director of Americans for Financial Reform in 2010. Heather was the national coordinator for the Coalition Around Marriage Equality and the 2013 Supreme Court decision. She was also the field director for the 2017 campaign to end the tax giveaways to millionaires and billionaires. She's working on a campaign to lower prescription drugs. Let's meet and get to know this committed, passionate mover and shaker. Heather, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Sandy, with that breathless introduction, I feel like if I were smart, I'd just stop now. <laughs> uh, thank you for your uh, uh, generous uh, introduction and your warmth, and thank you for being such a creative woman. Uh, your audience should know we, we met at this film festival, and I fell in love with you, Aww. your vitality, your insights, uh, your energy, your passion. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, it is totally my pleasure, and not for nothing. All of that is uh, fostered by the women I've had the opportunity to meet and get to know. This is more than a labor of love. So, Heather, I'm going to go back in time with you. Where did the organizing come from? And what I mean by that is, was that what you were familiar with growing up? I was brought up in a family that was really loving and had what I call good family values. So... I knew what love was, how important it is, how important it is to support each other and also to leave this world a better place, not only to try and be a good person and to do unto others as we'd want done to ourselves, sort of a golden rule, but also uh, maybe it's the Girl Scout model. You uh-huh. want to leave the campsite better than when you found it, uh-huh. Uh-huh. leave our community and our country and our world uh, better than when we found it. And then I found one activity after another that sort of led me on this path, uh, beginning with the civil rights movement. Well, we're about the same age, and I was in college during that time as well. When you got to the University of Chicago, getting that involved was a no-brainer to you. Well, I grew up in Brooklyn and uh, then moved to the North Shore of Long Island and in a way felt I never fit in, maybe all high school students feel they never fit in, or many do. Mm -hmm. But by the time I got to college, I really felt the world opened up, that I could say what I thought and find others in agreement and a broader community that also shared those values. And then I found my way to the civil rights movement. 
1960, I had joined CORE, Congress on Racial Equality, in support of the sit-ins going on in the South where African Americans weren't allowed to sit at lunch counters in the South and then were integrating uh, lunch counters, swimming pools, schools, libraries. And then I found the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, which in many ways was the front line of the youth part of the civil rights movement. Right. And I found just such meaning and impact, um, both in support of the work others were doing and then joining in with them, both in Chicago, where my school was, as well as in Mississippi in 1964. Well, the University of Chicago was the place to be then. Well, I certainly loved my first years there. It was really uh, very exciting. And with SNCC, I not only started an on-campus organization, but then in the summer of 1964, there was a summer project. Many of your listeners may have heard about it. It's when Northern students were asked to go down to Mississippi to support the courageous work being done largely by African-American poor, often sharecroppers in the South, and to support their work. And by coming down to add additional national visibility and some resources to the work already going on down there. Right. The summer project got notoriety because three of the young volunteers, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner, were killed at the right. hands of the Klan. Right. And many, many, many people had heard about that. What they may not know is that while they were looking for the bodies of the three young men, the bodies of other black men were found, often hands bound or feet chopped off, one in the Tallahatchie or Pearl River. I mention it to say the level of the state of terror that poor black people were living in in Mississippi. And even with that, because people organized, within a year, there was a Voting Rights Act. And you can win. You can change this world if we organize. Right. And it was a key lesson that I learned then and have carried with me for the rest of my life. Well, there, the proof was in the action, which is so empowering and impactful. So... In addition, as I mentioned, and you did too, civil rights and anti-war, let's move into the women's movement. How and why was the Jane Collective born? I'll give a little background of uh, the context of what life for women was like uh, in those years in the early 1960s. A friend of mine had been raped at knife point in her bed in off-campus housing. We went with her to student health to get a gynecological exam, and student health told her that they didn't provide gynecological exams. And more than that, they gave her a lecture on her own promiscuity. Oh, my God. Even though she had been raped oh my in her God. own bedroom. And you think, this is nearly unbelievable. But in fact, that's what the world was like unless we organized. So we sat with my friend, um, they called it a sit-in, and over time, because people demonstrated, because people took action, of course now gynecological exams are covered by student health. Of course now you're not given a lecture on promiscuity, but you're given supportive counseling right. and education in advance. And all of that's a reflection 
of organizing and of a growing women's movement. But it gives a sense of what life was like before that organizing was taking place in the kind of vital way it was as the women's movement developed. In 1965, a friend of mine told me his sister was pregnant and nearly suicidal, but she wasn't ready to have a child. And could I find her a doctor to perform an abortion? I didn't recall ever thinking about the issue before. It was a more innocent time. In some ways, I was a more innocent person. I've never had to face the issue myself. But again, feeling that you help others who are in need, I reached out to the Medical Committee for Human Rights, the medical arm of the civil rights movement, and asked them if they knew any doctor who would perform an abortion. And I was directed to someone, Dr. T.R.M. Howard. I, I really want to underscore his name because he's a great hero who's often uh, neglected in history. He had been a civil rights leader in Mississippi who came to Chicago when his name was on a Klan death list and had started a women's health clinic in Chicago on 63rd Street called Friendship Clinic. I, I didn't know any of that at the time. In fact, I, I really didn't know any of that until after he died several years later. I contacted Dr. Howard. He made the arrangements for the abortion. I passed the information on to my friend and didn't really think much more about it. But a little while later, uh, word had spread and someone else called. I made the connection again. And then someone else called. Mm. And I wasn't telling anyone about it, so it must have been the women themselves. Mm -hmm. At that point, I realized, gee, there really is a need, and I better set up a system. And the I lived in a dormitory at the time, and so I decided to call it Jane, ask for Jane. And I talked to Dr. Howard about what was involved. Is there anything that should be done in advance? What should be done after the fact? Does it hurt? Is there, how long does it take? How much does it cost? Could we negotiate on the price? And he was incredibly responsive, uh, helpful and supportive. After a while, uh, Dr. Howard I, I lost contact with him. I think there may have been a police raid on the uh, clinic. Um, but for whatever reason, he stopped taking the calls. And so I reached out to find another provider. And I found someone whose name was Mike, who worked in a suburban area uh, near Chicago. I never met Mike either, uh, just as I never met Dr. Howard. We just talked by phone. But I made the same arrangements I had with Dr. Howard. And the number of women coming through was increasing, uh, all kinds of women. First, it was students, mainly from the university. Then it was students from other Midwestern universities, colleges. Then it was other people from Chicago. Uh, one young woman who came through was the daughter of a policeman. Oh, God. Uh, her mother came with her. And so we knew the police even knew about it. Wow. And word was spreading. By 1968, I had gotten married in 1967 with a, someone I met in the movement. We actually met at a sit-in against the war in Vietnam. And uh, he's been my life partner. And we were expecting our first child in 1968. We got married in 67, first child in 68. And I realized there were 
too many people coming through for me to handle myself. I was getting a graduate degree and working full-time and had movement work. Oh, my God. And, and I realized I needed to pass this on to someone else. And it would actually take a group. There were so many people coming through. Gosh. So at that point, every meeting that I'd go to on any subject, at the end of the meeting, I'd say, if anyone's interested in talking about abortion, working on abortion, uh, come see me. And when I had about 12 or so women, we organized a meeting to go through what the process was, see who really wanted to be involved. And we role played what the uh, consulting relationships were like. I went through all the relationships I had with Mike and how to connect with him and how to prepare the women and support them who went through. And then I left and left it on to the other women. Those women who formed the core of Jane, their numbers expanded as the number of women who came through expanded. Uh, there probably were over time over 100 women who were part of Jane, who were providing the services. And over time, the women could see the procedures being done and so many were coming through that they needed to help Mike with the procedure. And he was willing to teach them how to do it. And then it turned out, Mike told them that he actually wasn't a licensed physician. Holy cow. Now, some people on hearing that, yeah, say holy cow, or it sounds a little shocking. On the other hand, it also says that there are many services that midwives have done before that nurse practitioners have done and that other people who, if they do it on a regular basis with consistency, can also carry this out. Right. In fact, after Jane was dissolved, after Roe uh, became the law of the land, there was a study done at the University of Illinois that documented that the women who were going through the Jane service had a higher rate of successful outcomes than even were experienced in hospitals and other legal clinics. So knowing all of that, <laughs> that more hands were needed, that the women were learning how to do it anyway, Mike passed on the service to the women and the women took control of Jane. And between 1965 and 1973, when Roe became the law with the Supreme Court decision, the women of Jane performed 11,000 abortions. Yes, I, I, I saw the movie, and I certainly knew about the statistic. And even when you say it, it still gives me goosebumps. I mean, it's, it was just extraordinary. Good Lord, Heather, when you look back, does it still not give you pause? Well, you know, at the time, my recollection is it mainly seemed like this was just the right thing to do. Mm. I even know if I had a second thought about it. It was, these are women in need. Now, one in four women of reproductive age will have an abortion in their lifetime. It means it's not rare. And we need to provide caring, loving, supportive, safe services. We should fight to keep it legal but we have to make sure the women are protected. Yeah, yeah. And so I was glad to be part of it. 
you know, part of the story of Jane, and I may be getting to this, is that by 1972, there were so many women coming through Jane to get an abortion, and the service was so supportive and protective of Jane. But one night, uh, the police, who, as I said, I think knew about it in advance and actually may even have been protecting uh, the women in Jane, we think they had it under surveillance but weren't doing anything to stop it. But one night, there was an arrest, and the police officers the, um, and detectives uh, broke into what was called the front, the, the area where the women would be waiting to be called in to get their procedure, like a waiting room. That was very cozy and supportive of the women. And the police officers came in and kept saying, well, where is he? Where is he? As if there was a guy performing the abortions. And as we know, there was no guy. It was all Jane. All volunteers. All the women. Yeah. And there were seven of the women in Jane arrested. And while they were awaiting trial, no one would testify against them. So they couldn't go to trial. There were... I'm told there were a hundred women waiting for abortions at the time of the arrest. The women of Jane who still remained uh, found places for them to go. At that point, there were out of state legal places that New York, Hawaii, Colorado, uh, other states. And then of course you always could go to a Scandinavian or other country. It's one of the reasons that women who had money to travel those distances could get an abortion, but women without funds, right. uh, always their life right. is harder and couldn't find mm-hmm. that support. But the women of Jane found ways to send them uh, and provide the abortions. And no one would testify against the women of Jane, against the seven who had been arrested. And knowing that a Supreme Court case was coming down for decision, the case was not prosecuted in court, and it was dropped once Roe came down. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, man. Let's switch gears a little bit. What was it that you said to yourself, I want to do with my life? I'm not sure what I was thinking particularly at the time, but I, I was 40 years old by the time I realized this is what I'm doing with my life. You know, I grew up like others. I wanted to be a good person. I wanted to have a happy life. I did want to get married and have kids. I love those kids, one born in 68 and one in 69. And they now have kids, five grandchildren, a great joy in my life. I think perhaps I thought of being a teacher or a social worker. I wasn't quite sure of the direction. But then on doing this work of being an organizer, I found a level of uh, gratification that I didn't find in anything else. To see people find their own voice, join with others, gain confidence, and change the world. It's one of the most exciting things anyone can do. And that's what an organizer does. They bring people who may feel that they're facing a problem alone and in isolation, and then helping them see that others share their problems. And if others share the problems, the problems may be social problems. And if they're social problems, They need social solutions. And if there's social solutions together, 
we can organize and change the world. And it goes, each, each activity I'd be involved with built on the other, not by an initial plan, but just by how life worked out. Sometimes these were not necessarily conscious acts, that things just happened in a certain way, right? I, I think that's right, that one, one action can lead to another. You can learn things from one experience and then try it out in another. You learn a set of people. You network from one group to another. And that's how so many movements and organizations and issues tie together now. The issues are connected in that they're designed to help make this a more just and caring society. Did you come up with these organizations? For example, I mean, obviously, becoming the training director for the Democratic National Committee, I mean, that was a given. That was there. And then directing the NAACP National Voter Fund. But here, as I mentioned, that you were the lead consultant directing the founding of the Campaign for Comprehensive Immigration Reform, and that happened back in 2005. So these were just, hey, I think we need to do this, and I'm going to be the one to start this, and then I'm going to bring other people into this. Is that how this kind of came to be? Well, there's a mixture of approaches. Some of them I actually thought of myself, some out of necessity, some out of opportunity, and some people would approach me on. So, for example, at one point, I'll show you how a few of those uh, organizing efforts emerged out of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, was, I was a grad student and had two kids. At that point, my husband wasn't working. We really had almost no money. Uh, friends, in fact, were bringing food over to our house because we were just, we really were struggling. And I got a job in a a kind of think tank, uh, knowledge industry. And it was very, it was great for me because I could be in grad school, working uh, with flexible hours and treated fairly well. But the clerical staff was treated terribly. And one of the clerical staff, who were all black, was told that her pay was cut because the woman who used to sit next to her was going to become her supervisor and so that woman who used to sit next to her needed a pay increase. Just imagine that as opposed to oh, saying, God. you know, the, the employer saying we're mixing up the salaries or here's the new pay scale or I, I, there was no process. And so my friend, this other, this clerical at the, the workplace was just in tears. She didn't know what to do. She was a single mother and she was about to quit. I said, don't quit. Let's come together. We'll just share ideas, bring it to the employer. Uh, And I actually thought he was a somewhat liberal guy. I thought maybe he would just respond. We all came together, brought it to the employer. The employer said they'd agree to the demands that we made, but that I needed to be fired because I was treating them as if they were a big conglomerate. What? And I was fired. You were the scapegoat. Uh, he thought I was the or I was the organizer of it, the initiator, but I thought it was just what was just and right to do. Right. Having been fired from a job I really needed, and I didn't go there in order to organize. It's just how the situation emerged. I then went to the National Labor Relations Board, which at that point still had some chance of deciding for working families. Right now, it's been 
so undermined by corporations and large employers and Republican and other government leaders who are uh, using it not to defend workers, which it was designed to do, uh, but to really just protect employers. So I went to them and I won a back pay suit a two, for two and a half years, the length of time it took for the case to go through the uh, NLRB, National Labor Relations Board. Right. I won a back pay suit. At that point, having a little extra money, swearing I'd never be fired again, I decided to create a training center to train organizers. Now, that was 1973. So that's something I initiated. And then the training center, Midwest Academy, which still exists and is a very, it's a terrific place to go for those who want to learn more about organizing. By the way, the website is www.midwestacademy.com. From that training center, we helped to initiate a number of kinds of organizations, working women's organizations, uh, creating alliances between labor and community groups, which hadn't existed uh, because there had been a division between labor and community, uh, really because the McCarthy era uh, had helped to create that division. We helped to create the model of statewide and multi-issue organizations. So out of that, we created other efforts. I became the director of some of those efforts, of, the, of a labor community alliance, of a national federation of statewide community-based organizations. And then having done that, by, I realized, gee, we have a certain amount of power, but by 1980, Reagan was elected, and many of the advances that we were seeing were being rolled back. And I realized we have to get into elections. And so I learned about elections. Good Lord. And I started uh -huh. to work with a really wonderful guy who's, who's now died, uh, Paul Tully, who had been the political director of the Democratic Party and had been the political director for Bill Clinton during his campaign uh, later on. And I learned about elections and then became very active in elections in Chicago. You, you know, it's interesting, before 1980, I had been skeptical about elections. I felt, as I think now, it's dominated by money, you often need to make compromises. But I realized then if you don't do elections, it's a friend of mine, Alice Palmer, who's a state legislator in Chicago, said, if you don't do elections, elections do you. <laughs> right. And so I realized we need to combine elections and organizing. And then once I was in that and involved in a number of campaigns, Mayor Washington ran in Chicago and I I assisted the person who was the director of the field effort, Jackie Grimshaw, an extraordinary leader, and learned those skills. So one issue and activity led to another. And then I was asked to come to the Democratic Party when Bill Clinton was elected. I already moved to Washington. My husband's job had moved there. He worked for AFSME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, one of the largest public employee unions in the country. And he ended up being first field director and then assistant to the president of AFSCME. So we lived in Washington. And when President Clinton came into office, I was asked to come to the Democratic Party to help set up a field operation. 
And while I was doing that, there then was the outreach for the Hillary health care plan. I was a single-payer advocate, but also thought that passing that plan would have been a great advance. I worked on that. And then there was a very bad election for Democrats in 1994. And so after that election, there was a decision to build a training training capacity for the Democratic Party to train political operatives to know really what to do. And I was asked to run that training operation. And then after I left the Democratic Party, Julian Bond, who was the had been a leader in SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating right, Committee, right. Mm-hmm. a great leader, and then had become chairman of the NAACP, mm-hmm. asked me if I'd set up the advocacy arm of the NAACP. And that was the NAACP National Voter Fund. And in 2000, we helped to increase turnout by well over a million African-American votes. And it's an election that was finally stolen by George Bush in the Supreme Court. <laughs> but we made an enormous difference. So I, I'm just explaining how some things I initiated, some things were opportunities that I could take, and some were possibilities that people offered me, having seen what I had done and relationships that I built from earlier work. Right. And Yes, and that's the sense that I did get. You didn't necessarily have a particular trajectory and that there was this flexibility for you to move over here and do this or move over there and do that. And so you had such a, and have such a large playing field. And in that same vein, as I mentioned also in the introduction, that there's a film about your life and organizing, Heather Booth, Changing the World, clearly an apt title, And I guess that that's just, for lack of a better word, quite a retrospective. It's really a terrific film. Uh, I didn't make it, of course. Lily Rivlin did, who's a wonderful, acclaimed filmmaker. And uh, people can download the film uh, if they go to the website, www.heatherbooththefilm.com. And it's been shown around the country, actually even around the world, but it's been shown in... Uh, I've probably gone to about a hundred of the places that it's shown, and we often have a talk back. That's when uh, Sandy, you and I met. Right, um, right. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was another film being shown, but I was part of that discussion. And um, many groups are finding that it's useful to show and build support for their efforts because it does chronicle such an array of social justice activities from civil rights and women's rights and immigration. Uh, and other issues, and give some sense of what it takes to actually organize. And now we need more people who feel the passion of taking action at this moment and of joining with others and seeing it through to change the world. You're just an amazing woman whose work has just had so much impact And you really are inspirational. And if I'm gushing, I'm gushing. Who cares? Sandy, I'm very appreciative that you're so kind in your comments. But I want to say two two other things about it. One, through my whole life, not only am I just a regular person, but often and often 
ordinary people can do extraordinary things. Of course. And we can be called on to do that. But I also have, in almost everything I've done, I actually have not been confident. I've wondered, am I good enough? Do I know enough? Am I smart enough? Am I this enough? Almost everything in the society tells us you're not good enough. You don't know enough, especially right. for women, right. especially for young people. And one of the things we need to uh, do for each other and project is that we may feel that we're not good enough. We don't have to pretend something different, but we can support each other. And together, we can make this difference in the world if we support each other and if we organize. I also wanted to say that probably the people listening and you, Sandy, are extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. You're having this uh, show that you have to spread the word to so many others, to share your passion with so many others. That's part of making this a better world. And whatever way in which people decide to do it, whether it's through their art and creativity, whether it's through their community relationships, family relationships, whether it's through specific organizations, and whatever the role, whether it's online, whether it's through their writing, whether it's through speaking, whether it's through making phone calls, all of it is part if we respect each other and commit to making this a better world. So thank you, Sandy. Oh, Heather, what a way to end. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us. It's just been, it's been more than wonderful. I appreciate it very much, Sandy. Anytime I can connect with you will be great. Oh, that's wonderful. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.